MSW Media. Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Fed's favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond, plus sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. This is episode 60, and it's Wednesday, March 9th. I'm uh, your co-host, Allison Gill, and with me, as always, is Andrew Torres. Hi, Allison. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Back from vacation, ready to get back uh, into the news. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, just a continuing message. As you know, we both continue to stand with Ukraine here on the show. Yes, indeed. And uh, on a cheerier note, we want to thank our new patrons, Eric Farrar, Molly A. Ricar, Dish Taco, which Ooh. I love, it's tacos, and uh, Jenny Weber. Yeah, and also a shout out to new patrons, Nancy Ayotte, an exquisitely funny name, indeed. And in my final year of law school, woohoo, well, ah. <laughs> woohoo to you. And uh, if you'd like to join these fine folks, get a shout out and sponsor the show for as little as a buck an episode, head on over to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod. That's A-I-S-L-E 45-P-O-D and sign up today. Yes, yes. You'll get the ad-free version of every episode going back to the beginning, 60 mm-hmm. episodes ago, uh, plus all our special goodies. And you uh, keep us on the air and off of Spotify. So thank you very much. <laughs> very important. Now, on with the show. All right. So uh, <clears throat> breaking news here. And uh, I have some questions, Andrew, because usually when I read a court filing, I can kind of understand what the other person is getting at. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like you remember how we went through all the Kraken lawsuits and, uh, you know, w- what was great was the judges in those rulings were saying, I think you're saying this. And if you're saying this, you're still wrong. But this is what <laughs> I think you're saying. <laughs> but I can't make heads or tails of this. Judge Nichols, who is a Trump appointee and a yep. turd in the punch bowl, uh, after 10 judges have gone ahead and said it's totally appropriate to charge some of these insurrectionists with obstructing an official proceeding, which is, I believe, 18 U.S. Code 1512 C2, 
this is the 11th time it's been in front of a court, and this guy, Judge Nichols, has decided it's not, it doesn't apply. And he has some reasons, and I remember there's some side-by-side comparisons with other statutes and something about the word otherwise. Can you help me understand? Because I can't even figure out what he's trying to say. I, I can try and help you understand, but I do not want to lose sight of the top line, which is this is a manifestly activist decision against a statute that, uh, as you point out, has been repeatedly applied uh, to insurrectionists at the Capitol. Uh, It continues to be in 500 plus pending indictments. Um, And this opinion ruling that uh, it is uh, ruling on a motion to dismiss, saying, in other words, the facts as alleged against an insurrectionist, in this case, Garrett Miller, someone who breached the Senate, right, reached the floor of the Senate, does not amount to an allegation of a crime under 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2 uh, is breathtaking in its sweep cites zero 1512 cases uh and is just an example of um how you can be an activist judge if you are armed with an idea of you know the only thing that matters is the original intent of the statute as filtered through me the judge um so so we'll break this down this is an incredibly significant ruling not because of the legal effect, right? The legal effect is to dismiss one count against Garrett Miller. There are 11 others that are pending. This guy was a violent insurrectionist who breached the Capitol. He's going away for a long time, okay? The reason that Judge Nichols, as you point out, a Trump appointee and somebody who has stuck his neck out in a stupid way for Trump in the past, right? The the reason that Judge Nichols is doing this is because this gives an instant round of ammunition to every single remaining insurrectionist and as we'll talk about in the b segment the chief architects of the insurrection leading all the way up to the former president of the united states this was done with an eye towards those individuals okay so here's the argument yeah and and i'm sorry to interrupt but that's what i was thinking right because these other 10 judges we celebrated those rulings Mm mm-hmm because 1512C2 is one of the charges that is laid out by the January 6th committee, as you said, we'll talk about later, in their filing, and, and probably what they, one of the two charges they'd make a criminal referral about, and in order to establish that the architects of obstructing an official proceeding obstructed an official proceeding, you've got to have the boots on the ground people being able to be charged with the same thing, right? Like a pyramid case. Yeah, that's right. Although I need to point out, there is no such thing as law of, you know, the same court here, right? In other words, other district court judges are not bound to apply Judge Nichols' opinion in cases pending before them. And as you point out, this is, to call this an extreme minority opinion, is to undersell it, right? Like, of those 10 prior judges, they include some of the most conservative judges Uh, on the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, right? So uh, not a requirement that those judges follow this decision. I doubt any judge will follow this decision. Um, Answering a question you asked me privately, haven't had a chance to ask on the show yet, yet, but I I imagine our listeners are wondering, we're going to cut to the punchline. This opinion can be immediately appealed up to the D.C. Circuit will be immediately appealed up to the D.C. Circuit, will be reversed by the D.C. Circuit, right? Like, it's terrible in every way, okay? Uh, But 
you know, one of the things that that is contributing to a sort of general unease and frustration is, you know, the the uh, okay, you know, January sixth was a long time ago, and it's been over a year, and you know, how come we can't hold people accountable? And one of the reasons for that is because the other side has planted sleeper agents in the judiciary that have come up with rulings like this. So how do we get there? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, th- that's I was hoping you were kind of going to explain that, like the like the <laughs> side by side comparison with some other law and Begay and some other things that he mentioned. And like, I just don't I can't wrap my head around what he's even trying to say. It's 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 it, is it me or is this a poorly written ruling? It It is poorly written. And the reason that it's poorly written is because it has to convince you of a thing that is transparently, obviously the opposite. Right. So let's start with that thing is. And that is the statute. OK. 18 U.S.C. Section 1512, uh, which is a general statute about obstruction. Right. Um, and, you know, the the title is tampering with a witness victim or an informant. But titles are not binding. Right. And subsection A says, if you kill a witness, that's a crime, right? Mm -hmm. If you threaten to use physical force against them, that's a crime, right? Um, Because that's one way in which people obstruct official proceedings. That is by killing, injuring, or threatening to kill or injure potential witnesses, right? Section B says, whoever knowingly uses intimidation, threaten, or corruptly persuades another person, right? So what's another way in which people uh, obstruct justice? They obstruct justice by... Uh, bribing witnesses. Right. Um, And then subsection C talks about a a third set of ways in which people can obstruct official proceedings. And it reads like this. It says C1, whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates or conceals or conceals a record document or other object or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding. That makes total sense, right? A third way in which you might uh, infringe on an official proceeding is you don't uh, tamper with the witness or kill the witness or bribe the witness, but you get rid of uh, or mutilate or conceal or alter the key documents. Or eat or flush down the toilet. (laughs) Right. And, And those are all real things, right? But then at the end of C1, it says semicolon or, and then C2 says, otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so shall be fined under this title or in prison not more than 20 years or both. And everybody who has ever read that statute, from non-lawyers to lawyers, from liberal judges to moderate judges to conservative judges, has looked at it and goes, yeah, C1 sets out a, a specific way in which you can influence, obstruct, or impede an official proceeding, right, by destroying stuff. And then C2 is the catch-all. And it says, by the way, like, look, we, we're we trying to think like a criminal here, but if we forgot something, we want to make it a crime to obstruct, influence, or impede an official proceeding, right? Right, like by attacking the building where the proceeding is happening. And yeah. it's not, you don't have to have one to have, or A to have, or B to have C, right? Yeah, one to have two. Yes, one exactly. to have two. Right. I mean, that's it, what the it, word it, or means. And that's what the argument was, right? For Miller was like, oh no, 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 this says I have to destroy documents and also 
show up and then fucks it up. Uh, and that's what the otherwise thing is. And, and he tries to explain it in some way that makes no sense to me. Uh, it, it should make no sense to you, right? Because again, <laughs> at the end of section one is the word or. And coming from a judge who says, we are applying the plain meaning of the statute because we worship at the altar of originalism, um, there is not a discussion of what the word or means. We all know O-R, right? Not O-A-R, although I'd like to hit this guy with an or. Like, it, it, there, is, there was zero discussion of what the word or means in an, in an analysis of that whether section two is limited by section one. Mm-hmm. So the first conclusion, I, I should add, by the way, <laughs> that uh, there, there was also raised the argument that officially counting the votes does not count as an official proceeding. Mm-hmm. And this judge was like, okay, not even I'm going to bite on that one. Like, right. Uh, of he course said there were like, like three other arguments. He's like, no, 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 no. But this one where one limits two, I like that one. And, and there is no reason to, to like this. <laughs> no, there's so not, because the word or is there. He doesn't yeah. even mention that. He's stuck on otherwise. He says, applying the, the judge says, applying the traditional tools of statutory interpretation, text, structure, and the development of the statute over time, this court concludes that three different readings of the statute are possible and two are plausible. Okay, And then it says, but uh, because it's a criminal statute and one wonders exactly how often this canon gets applied by this judge in this court. But uh, because it's a criminal statute, we should read it as narrowly as possible. So let's take a step back. This is an argument, okay, that Congress, when it passed 18 U.S.C. Section 1512, intended to criminalize witness tampering, murdering the witness, bribing the witness, and destroying documents but if you manage to somehow navigate those that waterway uh, and interfere with an official proceeding in some other way, say by stoking an insurrection, storming the Capitol and driving members of Congress into safe houses. Well, good for you. You you figured out the loophole. That's mm-hmm. what this that's what this opinion says. Okay? Yeah, You have to do one of the other three things in order for it to count. Yeah. And, and so he begins with. Reading the text. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I'm, yeah. That's just so dumb. That's just I, so fucking dumb, dude. It, it, it is because he began, again, he begins with sort of gaslighting everybody. He says, reading 1512C2 alone is linguistically awkward. No, it fucking isn't. We just read it. It says, whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, blah, 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 or otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. Everybody, this is a, if this were, you know, uh, the family feud, like this would be the number one answer on the board. Those are two different things. And uh, every court that's ever looked at this has before uh, Judge Nichols has said these are two different things. So first, he's got to say that's linguistically awkward. (laughs) Yeah, if you're dumb. (laughs) I I don't know how else to say. I mean, you are correct like that. That it's it's just preposterous. So he doesn't cite any 1512 C2 cases, but he cites some other cases that have statutes that are broken down in a similar fashion. He cites other cases that use the word 
otherwise. Right? Oh. Because yeah, because two, that's what you do when you prove your thing. You don't talk about the actual law itself and how it's been applied. You talk about other laws with similar words. Uh, it, 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 <laughs> but you ignore the word or. It, right. I mean, that's the thing is, it, <laughs> or, or is disjunctive. I, it, anyway, or is disjunctive. That doesn't come up. It then says, well, after the or is otherwise, and you have to prove to me Right. That otherwise uh, does not mean doesn't erase the or it, <laughs> that <laughs> this the section the, the 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 argument here is otherwise as a clean break between subsections. Right. And again, this is a possible he concedes this is a possible definition of the word otherwise, meaning, quote, in a different way or manner differently or in other respects. So again, okay. you seem like well, this this still seems to support the obvious. Plain is he trying meaning. to say since you're saying or in circumstances different from those present that it's a double negative and the or and the otherwise cancel each other out? No, that would be a much more clever argument than <laughs> what he you. actually. <laughs> Thank you. Because <laughs> I mean, that's I think why I couldn't pick up like what he was putting down. I'm like, dude, you're not even even your. Anyway, please continue. What he says is, if you use, if you read otherwise that way, that would be a bad way to understand the word otherwise because it would now render a nullity, right? Which is a, a common uh, canon of judicial construction. The more specific stuff that's laid out in the statute. In other words, all you would have to do is was pass one omnibus bill that says uh, whoever officially whoever oh. uh, obstructs a proceeding is guilty of the crime, and so you wouldn't have saying, to say. All right, yeah. so he's saying there, there's no, you know, if that's what they meant, then they wouldn't have listed all those other individual things. They would have just said everything. That's exactly right. Now there are that's the really, of I've course, it's a dumb thing, right? Be- because uh, it it for a number of reasons, right? The first is it is very common legal practice to say, right? The following things are illegal under this statute. And then you list seven things and then you have a catch all provision at the bottom, right? You say, you know, we want to criminalize the kind of stuff that we've seen where people have tried to intimidate witnesses kill witnesses, burn documents, bribe witnesses, and I don't know all the rest of that stuff, right? All right uh, question, <laughs> a question, question, question. Go ahead. All right, so when Trump pardoned Manafort, mm-hmm. and he says, I pardon you uh, by the power <laughs> vested in me, uh, by the golden toilet, uh, I pardon you for the, the crimes that you were convicted of. And then let's say he adds, and anything else at the end, is this judge saying that the anything else is limited because they wouldn't have said anything else? They wouldn't have listed the other specific convictions? Do you, am it, I making... It, you, you are making perfect sense. Let me translate it. And then uh, because you are very, very close to what this judge actually said. So, so if, hard for me to be dumb. I know. I know. I know it is. <laughs> I appreciate this foray into stupidity on your behalf. Uh, it, if If... If the Trump pardon of Manafort had said, 
I hereby pardon you for all crimes in connection with the Mueller report, uh, comma, or otherwise any crimes committed against the United States. This judge would argue that that or otherwise means that everything in the second clause must be a subset of crimes during the Mueller investigation, that it it converts the or into an and, right? And and if you think I'm I'm being facetious here, the the argument, the only case that this judge cites is a case called Begay versus United States. You made reference to a 2008 Supreme Court decision considering whether drunk driving was a violent felony under the Armed Career Criminal Act, right? So that act, right, 18 U.S.C. Section 924, subsection E2B2, said a violent felony is any crime punishable by imprisonment for a term exceeding one year, that is, burglary, arson, or extortion involves use of explosives, comma, or otherwise involves conduct that presents a a risk of physical injury to another. Now, notice, by the way, that that is a very different sentence construction than the or otherwise here in 1512, that in 1512, the or otherwise break is between C1 and C2, right? Like it's actually separately numbered, which usually gives you an indication that you're moving on to a new thought. Um, And the court said, you know, in the middle of that sentence, when you are defining the offense, that is to say burglary, arson, extortion involves the use of explosives or otherwise involves conduct that presents a risk of physical injury to another. It doesn't it probably Congress didn't mean to include drunk driving, right? Because burglary, arson, extortion all feel like violent, intentional crimes and drunk driving feels like, you know, something less than that. Um, and so, so they weren't interpreting otherwise to not include those other things. They were just saying that they don't feel that it falls under this statute because of the severity of it or whatever. They were saying that the otherwise meant that the, the part that followed modified the part in the predicate, right? So okay. that is, you weren't limited to burglary, arson, or extortion, but you were limited to a kind of a Stuff thing. Like it. Right, exactly. So the majority opinion concluded that the text preceding the otherwise, right, influenced the meaning of the text that follows. It limited the scope of that clause to crimes that are similar to the examples themselves. But isn't breaking into the Capitol and physically stopping an official proceeding similar to destroying documents? Yeah, because because if, if the argument is that this is not a subset, then all you have is a pleading defect, right? If the argument is everything in this statute is uh, circled around individuals, right? And that is, did you bribe the witness? Did you kill the witness? Did you destroy their document? Did you do the stuff in subsection C1, right? Um, Even if that's, you know, did you alter, destroy, mutilate, or conceal the record document or, or other object? then all you need to do is plead that uh, the that everybody who breached the floor of the Capitol, right, altered, destroyed, mutilated, concealed uh, the effort, the the uh, effort by members of Congress to evaluate the, the electoral vote certifications. Right. And 
and it's clear that they did right they attempted you you cannot argue so that, that they would be did my not. appeal yeah uh, attempt if, to if, do even that. if you're gonna go this way first of all you're wrong because it's right. an or but even <laughs> if we did apply that then you know it is equal it's not like begay uh it is equal or even greater uh, yeah. than than what came in the predicate uh part so what what I, <laughs> what what this judge says is not that any of the arguments we're making are wrong. This judge says, yeah, I totally get how you could read C2 as expanding on C1. However, if you read C2 as being limited by C1 under this gymnastics from Begay that I just described, then arguably, again, not a great argument. You just made one to the contrary, but arguably, uh, 1512 requires you to have a specific document or other object. There's no specific document yeah, or other object. Yeah, there is. It's a fucking cert of the certificate. Yeah, but that's not specified in the indictment. Okay, well... Uh, I get it. I You you asked me to explain this nonsense right, to you, right, not to right. justify it, right? So, and the argument is, if there's any plausible reading that gets this guy off, I am bound... To follow that plausible reading, even though, A, I don't use this in any other aspect of uh, ruling from the bench. And, you know, the amount of uh, drug related cases uh, in which Judge Nichols has uh, bent over backwards to find poor black defendants were, you know, victims of a statue. Zero. Right. I did a quick look. Mm. Oh, good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, again, you know, you are left with a reading that is cobbled together out of citations to other statutes that are inapposite with zero citations to the history of how 1512 has been prosecuted, including a dozen other times in the court in which Judge Nichols sits. All right. So the appeal is going to say, hey, uh, or... (laughs) <laughs> and it's going to and it's going to give you a bunch of cases with statutes with or and yep. then it's going to give you a bunch of cases of 1512 C2. And then it's going to say, but after all that, even if it, two is limited by one, then it could be argued that the the specific document in question are the are the certificates and that the crime of going into the Capitol and trying to obstruct an official proceeding is on par with destroying documents and tampering with witnesses and obstructing. And so therefore your little weird begay thing doesn't apply because first of all, it's not 1512 C2. And second of all, it's a different use of the word otherwise. And third of all, it wasn't delineated by a one and a two and it didn't have an or in it. I agree with, uh, with that a hundred percent. The one thing that I would add though, is if you get, <laughs> not, not you, Allison. <laughs> it, no, if, no, no. I mean, yeah, dumb. right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you're dumb. But but there is a a real risk here, right? Like if the D.C. Circuit comes back and says, yeah, look, under for avoidance of doubt, come back with an indictment against Miller, you know, a superseding indictment that uh, replaces count three and specifically alleges uh, that he undertook those actions to attempt to obstruct the records or documents that were present uh, on January 6th in connection with the uh, certification of the electors, that provides 
an additional defense mechanism, right? Yeah, I don't think for, they'll do that. But. Yeah, I don't either. So, so, but, but let's make this clear, right? Is that that would then say if you are a one six insurrectionist and you are charged with violating eighteen USC fifteen twelve C two, that a defense to that is, oh no, I just came to the Capitol to blow shit up generally because I hate Democrats and I love Donald Trump. I don't know anything about the electoral vote count. And and again, that's a lie, but that's the kind of lie that these idiots would be able to maintain, right? They would be able to say, like, oh, t- take a look. Like, I've never mentioned electoral vote. I mentioned Q and pedophiles and the basement of a pizza parlor, but, like, I don't know anything about electoral votes. I just know Donald Trump is the president, right? And that would be a winning defense if this view prevails, which is a good reason to say that this view is not going to prevail. <laughs> Yeah, it can't. And and yeah, I guess that would be uh, the argument that you would put in the thing, right? Yep. You would say, oh, by the way, if you do this, here's what happens. Yeah. And, yep. it, and not just for 1-6, but for any future other thing we didn't think of for a way to obstruct an official proceeding. Yeah, this says if you get people generalized, g- generally angry at the government and willing to, you know, throw Molotov cocktails, as long as they're not throwing it at a document, you can't charge them. And the idea that that's the law that Congress intended is a bizarre past the breaking point. I would also like to see how many 1512C2 cases that, that found convictions, that got convictions, uh, were about something other than the things listed in one. Yeah. And to say, well, we would have to go back and appeal and overturn these other uh, 182 cases, uh, <laughs> you know, or however many they are, mm-hmm. these examples of, of where or separated these two things. And it was something we didn't think of uh, and it wasn't limited by one. So do you really want to have that also? Because that would be it, another it, thing. Yeah, it, it absolutely could put those convictions at risk uh, and not to, not to mention the, you know, currently pending indictments of hundreds of individuals and that will be featured in the government's appellate brief cool well thank you for explaining that to me um i was so confused you confusion is the correct response that that this is a this is an activist judge uh, coming in to to protect his patron and we'll we'll see a direct example of how that applies in our next segment Yeah. And yeah, so we're going to go from confusion to hilarity. (laughs) And we're going to do that right after this break. Stick around. Hello, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Together, we host the Spy Talk podcast. Every week, we delve into the worlds of intelligence, foreign policy, military operations, and the intersection of all three in national security issues. Spycraft, cybersecurity, violent extremism, whether at home or abroad, technology's impact on intelligence gathering. We cover it all and much more. We interview former spooks, military officers, government officials, journalists, and national security researchers. Leveraging our backgrounds in military intelligence and homeland security, along with our decades of experience as journalists and news organizations like Newsweek, The Washington Post, and CNN. So join us every Thursday for a new episode of Spy Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, welcome back. And uh, as I said before the break, we had confusion and now we have hilarity because as we know, since we met last, Andrew, the January 6th committee filed this incredible filing 
61 pages, I think, um, in, in the, uh, with the Eastman case, right? The Chapman University emails case, because he's been slow rolling it. He's been making his lists of attorney-client privileged and work product privileged stuff. And, uh, and it's, it doesn't make sense and it's incomplete. And they're like, come on, man. And so, to quote Joe Biden, so mm-hmm. the, they, they filed this thing because what was happening was he, John Eastman was claiming attorney-client and work product privilege on a bunch of stuff. And the, this was the response. The January 6th committee said, no, we've got seven good reasons why none of this applies, why, why attorney-client privilege doesn't apply and why work product privilege doesn't apply. Work product is its own thing, right? You have to show that you're preparing for some sort of litigation uh, and not something else in these communications. And that is, was not happening in these communications. So that work product doctrine out the window. So that was reason one. Several other reasons. First of all, there's no engagement letter here. We asked for months for an engagement letter. And what you gave us, and you'll have to forgive me, I'm doing this off of the top of my head, so correct me if I'm wrong. But instead of, we, for months we tried to get an engagement letter from you, and what you sent us was a, a thing that said, I hereby represent Donald J. Trump Campaign Inc., which I don't think is a thing. And then there are also no signatures <laughs> where there are signature blocks. So it's not signed. Uh, so they're like, no, so you can't have that. And then a couple other reasons. Um, you went on a podcast and said Donald told you to tell everybody about this. Okay. And that's Donald waving. If that's the case, that's Donald waving attorney-client privilege. And then also you sent these to a bunch of other third parties who were not, you know, in an engagement agreement or not a, a representative of the law firm. It's, a, you know, all the different exceptions and exemptions for third parties. He didn't meet any of those either. And they're like, so you can't, that, that waves privilege on, on those things. Oh, and also, by the way, you committed crimes, the <laughs> reference of crimes in these things. Uh, and, uh, and also common law fraud. That's the fraud part of the crime fraud exception, I'm assuming. And they give a bunch of examples about how that uh, nullifies this. So the, the crime fraud exception was one out of several different reasons why these aren't covered by, the, by attorney-client privilege. And the crimes were 18 U.S. Code 371. Uh, which is uh, conspiracy, conspiracy to, to defraud, defraud the United US. States. Yep. And, of course, our, our old friend, uh, 18 U.S. Code 1512 C2, obstructing an official proceeding. And then they give a bunch of evidence as to why. So then Eastman, <laughs> writes, <laughs> Eastman writes this response, and he says, let me see if, if I've got the right thing here. Um, motion for exculpatory information in continuance of the March 8th privilege hearing. And this is this is Eastman's lawyers in in response to what the committee filed. This is just like eight reasons why you're stupid. Now, uh, he says there are serious accusations which have already made international headlines. They require careful consideration by the court. Were this court to sustain the defendant's claims, it may be the first formal finding of presidential criminality by a federal court in United States history. In responding to these claims, the plaintiff is effectively forced into the position of acting as a pseudo defense attorney for the former president. <laughs> If the former president had himself been charged with the alleged crimes, it could easily be years before an ultimate. So as I'm reading this, here's the thoughts that are going through my head. As I, as I, when I first read mm-hmm. this, it was right when it came out. I was like, this isn't a criminal proceeding. Um, you, you can't require criminal proceeding stuff if you're not in a criminal proceeding, which he does. And then he goes on to ask for Brady material. 
and discovery. Again, this is not, he's like, you're going to find criminality of a president in the first time in United States history. I'm like, no, this is just to ascertain whether or not you have attorney-client privilege. That's all this is. Just because we mentioned some crimes that you might have been criming and the crime fraud exception would apply doesn't mean that this is a criminal proceeding or an indictment. You aren't uh, entitled in my, this is just me thinking, you can't possibly be entitled to Brady information and exculpatory information. He's like, but these attachments have several pages missing. And it's like, well, yeah, because those are the relevant pages that prove our point. And we're looking for an in-camera review here for the crime fraud exception part. But honestly, this is probably going to, you know, be uh, ruled in our favor for any other number of reasons. But it was just it was a hilarious filing to me. And then, of course, the January 6th committee responds pretty much word for word with what I said. And then the judge pretty much says, yeah, yeah, you, January 6th committee and AG were correct. And uh, we're going on with the hearing. You don't get your continuance and and shove it. Do I have it? uh, yeah, we could end the show early. Like that is, <laughs> you are dead on a, a few things that I just want to pick out and yeah, amplify. Yeah, get in the weeds with me. Let's, because... Yeah, let's work backwards a little bit. Number one, all three of these filings occurred on Friday. And I need to emphasize just how unlikely this is. So there is a pending. This It will have been yesterday by the time folks are listening to this, right? So Tuesday, March 8th, I will be on it, uh, is a publicly accessible via Zoom uh, status conference over uh, the assertions of attorney-client privilege. It is a foregone conclusion. The reason I'm attending is because uh, I want to find out, you know, the color in the room. And also I have a prices right style bet with Thomas as to how long the hearing is going to go. And I have my over under is 14 minutes, right? Like I was going to say 12. Yeah. So that. <laughs> So if it's 13, I win as, but, but yeah, it, 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 what will happen at this hearing is the judge is going to say, uh, 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 turn over all the documents for an in-camera inspection, because that's what courts do when there is an assertion of privilege and the parties disagree over it is the judge says, Hey, you know, who's who's really good at figuring out how to apply the law me, the law talking guy, the judge. Right? Could there be a scenario where the judge says, I don't, I don't even need an in-camera review. These don't meet attorney-client privilege, uh, blah, 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 because of this and the other six reasons. Uh, or, like you said, because somebody brought up the crime fraud exception and the other party doesn't agree, then they kind of have to do an in-camera review. So the court... <sighs> The court certainly could say, and, and and I think as far as they're likely to go, in my view, is this. Based on the pleadings and based on the refusal of the plaintiff to respond to numerous substantive claims of waiver of attorney-client privilege or its inapplicability. Uh, you didn't even mention the Chapman University email policy, oh, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I left that one out. The thing where, where you send an email at Chapman University when you log in, there's a big thing that comes up that says there is no expectation of privacy on our server. Yep. And mm-hmm. and that's a minority policy, but it is one that Chapman University specifically put into place, right? So it th- there is that. There is the sharing drafts with third parties. That journalist has been redacted. I would love to know who that is. Sean Hannity, maybe. I don't know. But like uh, uh, but Tucker. Tucker Carlson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's got to be somebody evil. Um, 
But if there's uh, the, a disagreement on crime fraud exception, the, the and, court usually wants to review it. I think the, the, the as far as the court is likely to go is to say this court, uh, you know, is leaning towards a finding that no uh, attorney client privilege or work product exception applies to these communications for the various other reasons. In addition, the parties dispute whether the crime fraud exception applies. That will be resolved with an in-camera review. If there is any other result, I will be stunned. I will. I. It, I, I, I. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> could could the judge actually say, based on third party privilege, work doctrine, bullshit, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Chapman University warning of no privilege? You actually have to turn the documents over. We can do an in-camera review. It, on the crime fraud exception stuff or do, or will they will the judge wait to make a whole kind of thing until after an in-camera review because this reminds me of the walton the judge mm-hmm. reggie walton in-camera yep. review of the inappropriate bill Barr redactions right of the Mueller report because he was like you know what you guys don't agree i'm gonna have to look at these myself the, the difference is that um there were multiple different grounds for asserting redactions in the Mueller report. And so uh, Judge Walton went through to review each one of those individually. But as you suggested from your excellent summary at the start of the segment, um, this is this is an area where if you trigger one of these exceptions, then the documents are public, right? Then then attorney client privilege does not apply at all. So you don't have analytically, all you have to do is come to the conclusion of, yeah, there was a third party in the room. Doesn't matter then if the three of you were planning crimes or not, right? It's not attorney client privilege. But but I think that out of prudence, right, that this that this judge is just going to say, all right, turn over the documents for an in-camera inspection because that will bulletproof whatever they do right for the appeal um eastman certainly will appeal his arguments are not going to get any smarter um but uh you know i I do not see a court uh enjoining that production pending appeal those efforts have unilaterally failed all the way up to the supreme court including by trump himself right in the nara case yeah so and the supreme court declined to grant cert right that was there were not even four votes among an activist court's pro-Trump howler monkey contingency uh, to take the case to potentially grant Trump relief. They are certainly not going to do it for Dr. John C. Eastman, racist idiot. So now, this, this is like uh, a lot of documents, though. Uh, it, do, can the judge <laughs> appoint someone like a, like a special master team or a taint team to help yep. him review? You, you don't need a taint team here because a taint team is... Um, what you do when you are a private litigant and you want to, uh, I shouldn't say a private litigant, when you are a litigant, right? Like the, typically the government will say, okay, we're, we're going to review uh, the these materials before we allow the prosecutors to do so. So we're going to, we're going to wall off the prosecutors and we're going to have another one of our units come in. They will be the taint team, cue the song and the driving of the van. Um, Judge doesn't need to do that. The judge is allowed to to look at whatever uh, the judge wants to look at, uh, but absolutely can and will appoint a special master. Um, this is a privilege log that uh, has um, what looks like between it's going to be between several hundred and several thousand pages of documents. That's a lot, uh, but that's not 
you know, it's unreasonable. Yeah, it's not yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's it, not like yeah. the Rudy Giuliani stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and and I will tell you, having lost a uh, a, a motion, I, I've I've litigated this issue, right? Uh, this issue of uh, not not on crime fraud exception, uh, but on attorney work product, right? And my argument was that the lawyer who wrote this memo. Uh, and I had identified 50 or 60 of these, was not acting in a legal capacity. They were acting in a business capacity, right? Um, And so therefore, I should get to look at it. And I knew, I identified 50 or 60. I knew exactly what the key document was, right? And I won on a dozen. I lost on 38 of them. Uh, And the one I thought I was the only one I cared about was document 374, right? So I I promise you. Did you win on 374? No, I lost on 374. Yeah. Uh, I, I promise you that the judge, the parties, Eastman, they know what the smokingest gun is among these documents. And what's uh, hilarious though is that we got a pretty fucking damning smoking gun email in the mm-hmm. documents he did turn over. Uh, well, not it, not not just not in the documents that Eastman turned over. Uh those were produced Oh, the Jacob uh, uh, Yeah, by Gregory Greg Jacob, Jacob mm-hmm. uh Mike Pence's counsel because he is actively cooperating with the 1/6 committee. Uh, and but they did say that that they couldn't get this anywhere else. That was one of the other seven reasons is we can't get this anywhere else. These are pivotal. And so yep. it couldn't have been that particular email that, that there's got to be something other than that particular email because they were able to get that that email elsewhere. But there's emails in there that they can't get anywhere else. Yep. That presumably went to somebody closer to Trump uh, um, or maybe to Trump himself. Yeah. Somebody who's not. <laughs> Cooperating and handing over documents. <laughs> Roger Stone, uh, Matt, Mark Meadows. Blah, blah, blah. So, you know, that clued me into the fact that there's something other than the email they included in their exhibits that they're looking for. And yep. and it, it might be more than one, right? Uh, it, it very likely is, right? And, and, and remember, uh, I talked about this on the last OA. Um, we are having... Um, Professor Lawrence Lessig back on tomorrow's opening nice. arguments. Nice. Um, and and one of the you alluded to this in uh, in your intro. Um, John Eastman went on a tour, a media tour, gave an a, a fawning interview to uh, the National Review, and at every one, including going on my buddy Larry Lessig's podcast, he began with. Okay, you need to know uh, I had a client in this matter. That client is the former president of the United States, and he has authorized me to talk to you about what I am talking to you about today. You do not get a more clear waiver of attorney-client privilege than that, right? That is, I talked to my client. He said, go out there and talk to everybody. Now, Trump could throw Eastman under the bus and say, I never authorized him to do that. That is certainly a possibility. Um that's Trump kind of why been... I thought they would the, the 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 judge would just they would get in there and he'd be like, look, I don't even need an in camera review. You, it, da, 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 these other six reasons, be, you, you turn you, them over, be gone. You you could and 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 let's not you know let's not pause uh, too lightly on the there's no engagement letter, right? I I I've mentioned this before, but like if I were the subject of a quasi criminal proceeding. <laughs> which which is to say, if somebody were trying to invade uh, attorney-client privilege with respect to my documents, and I could not turn up a signed copy of the engagement letter with my client, 
I would call up my client and say, hey, I need an affidavit from you that says, yes, I engaged the law offices of P. Andrew Torres on such and such a date. He was acting as my attorney, blah, 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 blah. And I would get your signature and that would be exhibit one to my declaration. And I would say, okay, look, I'm sorry. We can't find the signed copy documents, get lost, whatever that, that is a totally valid excuse, right? That happens all the time. Here's a statement from the president saying I was acting as his lawyer. The fact that they can't get one should tell you something because they 100% asked for one. That's the first thing you can do. I know I'm a lawyer. <laughs> so you're you're suggesting that they asked Trump for one and he wouldn't sign. One. I am. I am suggesting that it for for that there are two possibilities. Either they asked Donald Trump for an affidavit and he refused to provide one or John Eastman is represented by the only lawyer on earth dumber than he is. It, it has to be one of those two. It could be. Okay. Why so, would why would Trump just out of curiosity what, speculating? Why would Trump not want to sign that affidavit because he doesn't want to have anything to do with John Eastman and wants to distance yeah. himself from that and say he's not my lawyer, he was a coffee boy? He he wants to keep as many options open knowing that John Eastman was the architect of the legal quote legal arguments behind the 1-6 insurrection could that, make him the fall guy. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 absolutely that will be Trump's next move, right? Mm-hmm. Um because Eastman went on Lessig's show and everywhere else, and he peddled the exact same lie. And that lie was, well, I just, it had two components to it. Number one, I'm a lawyer. It's my job to kind of think through everything. I was giving confidential advice to my client. And I said, here's, you know, nine different things. We're, I even put wargaming it in my, you know, larger memo. And, you know, some of that stuff was off the wall. Some of it was, was oddball. With respect to the, to the notion that, that Mike Pence could unilaterally declare electoral votes invalid, I thought that was an argument, but I thought it was a bad argument. And, and this is the key lie that Eastman used in every single interview, quote, and that it would be foolish for Mike Pence to do so. That is to undertake to unilaterally declare certain electoral votes invalid. What the uh, evidence produced by the 1-6 committee and attached to its opposition documenting the crime fraud exception here shows, uh, and this comes from Pence's counsel, is that in fact Eastman did the opposite of that. That Eastman constantly lobbied over the span of three days, including after the Capitol had been breached to persuade Pence by and through his counsel to do exactly that, to throw out electoral votes based on nothing more than Mike Pence's say so based on a legal theory that everybody knew was improper. And uh, that yeah, that's okay. real bad evidence if you're John Eastman. And so then Trump can say, I had nothing to do with it. It was all his idea. I never he was never my attorney. I never heard anything from him. I never took him seriously. Meh. Whatever. Yep. I mean, and- and, and and from there, right, then it becomes an ordinary criminal trial, right? Then you, you have to flip Eastman, right? Uh, you, you have already flipped Pence's counsel. Uh, you already have a number of folks who were cooperating with the 1-6 committee. And then you just have, right, that, that it's Trump's word against everybody else's, right? Interesting. And, and juries resolve those. Again, I don't want to downplay this, right? Um, when, when, when I 
covered the story initially, uh, you know, my buddy, Professor Eliason, uh, wrote and said, well, you know, you still do have to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury. That's true. OK, it, it, it Donald Trump will have the opportunity to stoke reasonable doubt. But I would as somebody who's not a prosecutor, I would love to prosecute that case. Right. I would love to say the statute requires reasonable doubt, not unreasonable doubt, not a scintilla of doubt. Right. It, it requires that your doubts be reasonable and you as the jury are capable of evaluating the testimony and you have to make a choice. And that is, are these career Republican politicians, folks who served Donald Trump faithfully up until the bitter end, are they all to a person lying or is Donald Trump lying? Because it can't be both. Right. And it can't be neither. You have to pick who's telling the truth here. Our parade of witnesses or the guy who stood the most to gain from failure to certify the election. Yeah, who who talked about it forever? Yeah, right. Yeah, makes sense. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to to that hearing yesterday, tomorrow for <laughs> us. <laughs> uh, and of course, we're going to go over that hearing on our respective podcasts, opening arguments, and the Daily Beans, so that you won't miss a beat. Because uh, I know you're listening to it, you've probably already heard <laughs> what's happened <laughs> in that hearing, in that 12 and or 14 minute hearing. Uh, yeah, I think they need probably at least a few minutes to introduce everybody. Uh, so yeah, I'll, fourteen sounds good. I'll 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 put my chips on your square. That's still basically a revolving door, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. Anyway, um, yeah, Eastman's in deep trouble, and that's fun. So we have one more quick story, and we're gonna hit that, but we have to take a quick break. Everybody, stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Francis Callier, and I'm Angela V. Shelton, and we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. And in our last story of the night, Joe Biden is governing as a progressive and making real difference in the real lives of real people. And if you'd like that to continue, you can do two things about that. First, you can donate and volunteer and vote for Democratic candidates in 2022 so that we can, at minimum, preserve the Senate and maybe, if we're lucky, deliver another couple of actual Democrats so that, you know, Biden won't be held hostage by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. And that would be great. And the second thing you can do, you can push back against your friends who are spreading memes and saying stuff like Joe Biden hasn't done anything as a reason for feeling demoralized going into the midterms. There are people paying millions, tens of millions of mm. dollars to get that message out to your friends to demoralize them and say if they if your vote didn't matter, they wouldn't spend millions trying to get you to not show up. Um, so this you know show is basically a 60-episode refutation <laughs> of that argument. And it's trivially easy to show how Biden has, in fact, done stuff. Yep. Today's stuff is reuniting families who were separated at the border. 
Yeah, to be clear. So the former guy hired Mirror Universe Keebler Elf and guy who was found, literally this is true, to be too racist to serve on the federal bench during the Reagan administration, Jeff Sessions, to be attorney general. Right. And the racist elf then announced on May 7th, 2018, that the administration would be pursuing a, quote, zero tolerance policy under which all adults entering the United States illegally would be subject to criminal prosecution. And if accompanied by a minor child, the child would be separated from the parent. Thousands of kids were separated at the border in 2018 until the ACLU and other groups were able to win a class wide injunction in a federal court stopping that practice. So they won the injunction, but the Trump administration promised to abide by its slow rolled compliance, made it as difficult as possible to provide information to reunite the families that had been separated at the border. Yeah. And, and what do we mean by slow rolled compliance? <laughs> yeah. Well, we mean, for example, that the government refused to turn over data stored in the EOIR database. That's the Executive Office for Immigration Review when instructed to turn over data held by ICE. They, you know, eh, they just, meh, we don't, whatever. We, we are not going to do it. Uh, they took the position, well, if you wanted what's in the e EOIR database, you should have just asked for it. And the plaintiffs with the ACLU took the same uh, position. Uh, we don't know what's in your fucking databases. That's why this is a lawsuit. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. And so to be clear, right, like that was a technical distinction. It was like, well, you know, ICE doesn't maintain the EOIR database. That's maintained elsewhere. You didn't specify EOIR, so we're not going to give you. Right. Obviously pretextual. So ultimately, the court required the Trump administration to turn over all of its data. And the court... Uh, and, and again, uh, this is language that the court used in a status conference on January 15th, 2021. So five days before President Biden took over, the court said, so clearly mistakes were made and erroneous assumptions were made. But on the issue of intentional withholding, this is the judge talking. I was reading into these declarations. I would keep an open mind as to that. I did not intend to make any kind of finding in favor of the government. It was just my initial observation based on the declaration that there does not appear to be any intentional misconduct. And the thought that I would have, as I mentioned earlier, is that the focus really ought to be on, okay, now we have the data. We ought to be focusing on reunification. I am not sure what a court finding would do one way or the other on the EOIR database and whether it was withheld intentionally or negligently or whatever would be of any benefit to this particular litigation. Uh, total vindication? <laughs> yeah, no, not, not quite, right? Like, that is that is the court saying, uh, yeah, the government was probably acting in bad faith. If you want me to enter a sanctions order, I will entertain it. I don't know that that's going to... You've got the data now. Let's focus on getting these families back together. Right? But, I mean, look at the date. Yeah. January 15, 2021. <laughs> Biden took office January 20th. And at the very next status conference, the ACLU announced a 180. Mm -hmm. They weren't going to make the government answer the Third Amendment complaint. Um, and they believed that the government would assist them in good faith in locating the families that had been separated, and they weren't going to pursue sanctions. Uh, and then the parties entered into a good faith settlement negotiation and have proceeded to work together for the past year. Huh, interesting. What a, yeah. what a strange turnaround. Yeah, because the Biden administration convinced the ACLU, correctly so, that they would partner with them rather than work opposite them. And since then, well, let's quote from the status report. The total number of children whose parents are currently confirmed to be members of the original and expanded classes. I'm going to 
get to expanded classes in a second, is 3,810, right? That is children separated from their parents at the border. The total number of children of those 3,810, the parents of whom the parties confirm have been located, is now 3,574, right? All but a small number. We're going to get to those. The total then of that 3,574 that the parties can confirm have been reunified with their separated parents, 2,762. Okay, so that is 2,700 kids who have been reunited with their parents, who were, who were stripped apart from their parents at the border by the former guy and reunited thanks to Joe Biden. And we've located the parents of 800 more and we're yep. working on reuniting them. And that expanded class are children who were not identified by the Trump administration and, and hidden in that yep. EOIR database and elsewhere. Uh, it's 1,198 kids, and they're the current focus of the Joint Steering Committee that's trying to track them down. Of those 1,198, the administration has now resolved 982, leaving 216 children unaccounted for. Yep. And and the parents of those 216 children fall into three groups, okay? So, and, and searches are ongoing, all three groups. First are 150 children whose parents are believed to have been removed from the United States following separation from their children. Obviously, that's going to be a hard group to reunify. The second is 59 children whose parents are believed to be in the United States, but are likely evading contact from government agents for understandable reasons, not the least of which is the last time you had contact with the government, they took your kids away from you. Third, there's a group of seven children for whom the government has not provided a phone number for the parent, child, sponsor, or attorney. And uh, as this notes, these status reports come out every couple of months. That's two fewer than the last status report. Again, I get it. Two out of seven, you know, two out of nine. It's now down to seven. We are making progress in all three of those areas. Yeah. So, so what you see is a concerted effort by the Biden, a very successful concerted effort by the Biden administration to track down every last child separated from their parents at the border, track down their parents. They're working with the ACLU, not hiding information from the ACLU, <laughs> which is, explains the ACLU's 180. And the next time someone tells you that Biden hasn't done anything, you can quit back. I mean, unless you're a child separated from your parent at the Mexican border, or you're an LGBTQ plus person, or a veteran, or you live in an area that will receive some inf- some money from the $3 trillion infrastructure passed in 2021, or you didn't get COVID, or... <laughs> uh, th- th- there are a couple of reasons that uh, you might want to say... Joe Biden has done some stuff. And maybe that's what we'll call this segment from here on out. Joe Biden has done some stuff. I like it. Since we're pretty much kind of tapering off of the comings and goings, we'll yeah. still we'll still pepper him in there as they happen. But I like the Joe Biden has done some stuff segment. I love it. Awesome. It's been great. Uh, it's been great talking to you. It, has been, it was really fun breaking down that Eastman stuff, man. <laughs> and uh, also trying to make sense of the Nichols ruling. Thank you. Um, and, uh, I appreciate that and looking forward to that hearing tomorrow, yesterday. Yep. <laughs> and it sure, again, it sure was slash will be great. <laughs> and yeah. And again, everybody who's listening, uh, on Wednesday to this episode, check out today's daily beans. You'll hear all about the hearing. Uh, and when, when, when will the next OA be out? And Thursday tomorrow. So there you go. So we have it. We will cover it unless I can, <laughs> unless I can, talk my editor into throwing a last minute you know 15 minute update into the show late tomorrow (laughs) night we might be able to do that so if there is that particular fun insert it will go here 
Okay, and if you didn't hear anything, that means we weren't able to get it in. But <laughs> I appreciate seeing you again. We did try. We did. We did try. Um, but uh, I appreciate uh, you. And uh, thank you very much for, for that breakdown. It really helped me understand just how stupid some people are. Uh, thank you for being here as a sanity check. And uh, that was that was spectacular summary on Eastman. So. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I totally forgot about the Chapman University <laughs> a privacy thing. You're losing I mean, in these six ways. I get the I get the temptation, right? Like that. <laughs> you really just, need to go zero for seven. Yeah, there's just so many ways. All right. Well, everybody, we will see you next week on Clean Up on L Forty Five. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, beating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez Ancona. And And this this is how we win. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. 
I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.